Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 42 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and take a moment, if you already listened to the show, to give us a five-star review. And uh, you know, type a couple sentences, let people know why you like the show. And if you can think of one person in your life you think would like this show, send them your favorite episode, and let's see if we can grow this audience. Um, the first thing I'm thinking about, which is going to sound fucking insane, is I was literally just thinking about The Office. And I was thinking about something that came up uh, when my buddy Matt, our podcast MVP of 2019, was here uh, last week, uh, we mentioned that on the last episode, but he was here and I mentioned it to him and I yell at my girlfriend about this every time, um, we watch the office, which given how I've been feeling lately, the only thing I have any capacity for is watching something, uh, watching some kind of escapist entertainment. Um, I had a sort of administrative task that I needed to accomplish with a coworker of mine, someone I hadn't spoken to in a long time, and we were sort of interfacing over Google Meet. Um, they're in another state currently, but because we hadn't spoken, we spent the first, you know, really 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so just kind of checking in with each other and seeing how we're doing and how we're both dealing with everything that's going on. And one thing we both kind of confided in each other is that, <clears throat> you know, we're from the Bay Area. You know, and you don't have to agree with this, especially if you've listened to the last few episodes of this podcast. But I consider myself a pretty uh, progressive person, pretty uh, culturally sensitive. And yet, you know, whether it's my work on the lines or now, you know, taking a sociology and communications class where every single assignment I have to do is a writing assignment where I have to talk about white privilege and cultural appropriation. Um, you know, then I have to go about my life and, um, you know, the only topic on everyone's lips is the George Floyd uh, homicide and Black Lives Matter, which is all great. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that I'm, you know, I don't know what this sounds like coming from a white male, but if you want to, if, if I'm going to be honest about how I feel, I am oversaturated. Um, it's like every time I open my communications class, we have this new writing assignment every day that we have to do. And every time when it's one of these sort of social justice issues, I just, my heart sinks a little bit because, you know, there's a certain level of detail and nuance I want to go into, but you know, the assignments take forever if I do that. And I just, you know, I, it's just like, I don't know what else I can say. You know, I can only sort of, um, uh, bleed all over the floor so many times, right? And sort of genuflect and, and talk about white guilt before I just kind of want to go, okay, okay. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I don't know. I was saying this to my friend also, but you know, the fact that I want to get away from the topic at all, or that I can, that I have the ability to get away from it is a privilege unto itself. But yeah, I'm just trying to be honest about how I feel, which is that I'm oversaturated. But why did I bring that up? Oh, by the end of the day, uh, you know, I just, you know, the form of entertainment I want to watch is bullshit. I want to watch escapist bullshit. I, I don't want to watch anything heavy. <clears throat> and lately, for me, that's been The Office. And I did see the original UK version years ago. Um, I remember downloading it as like a torrent in like 2000, like five or six or something like that. Um, I think I, I think the original office is about two thousand one, the UK version. But anyway, um, 
you know, I've, I was never really a big fan of the U.S. version, but as I've been going through it and watching it, the first few seasons are frequently very funny. And you start to get kind of, you know, the plot kind of wears itself pretty thin fairly quickly, but it's still, it's still frequently funny. Once you get into, like, the fifth and sixth season, though, they're officially out of fucking ideas and it becomes absurd, you know? They have left the realm of reality, and now the show is just sort of, it's bonkers. So, um, I think where, whereas when you first start watching it, it's funny because you, um, you either have had experiences just like that, or you work alongside people just like it, uh, just like these people, after a while, it just becomes sort of cartoonish, and, um... Yeah, I find it less funny, and it's starting to sort of move into kind of being kind of annoying, if I'm being honest. But I've had one enduring confusion about the show since I started watching it, which is uh, the character Ryan, who starts off as the temp, and then at at some point becomes like a higher executive, and then gets, um, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, but then gets like uh, caught in some insider trading scheme, and then he comes back, and he's a receptionist, and whatever the fuck. But when you watch the show... You, he is squarely in the minor character category. I mean, he has, for, the, for most of the show, he has about as many lines as the character Creed, who just kind of sits in the back and says something funny every three episodes or something. And yet, when you watch The Office, there are four people in the title sequence. There is Michael Scott, uh, Steve Carell's character. There's uh, Jim, uh, John Krasinski's character. There's Pam, I forget the actress's name. And there's Ryan, the fucking temp guy. BJ Novak is the actor's name. And he is in every title sequence. And you think, how the fuck did this person finagle their way into the credits? The only thing I can come up with is that either when the, when the show first aired, he was going to be more of a major character he was going to play more significantly into the into the plot line of the show and maybe when the contracts or whatever got drafted you know he had a strong agent who was like okay well my actor has got to be in the title sequence whatever whatever and as they move forward my guess is that in terms of the writing he got kind of written out of the show more and more but contractually or however these fucking things work he had already secured his place in the title sequence but it's yeah it's very strange to me and it wasn't until recently, this uh, the actor who plays, um, actually, I do know the actor's name because I recognized it for the first time last night, Ed Helms. He plays um, Andy, um, Andy Bernowski or something like that. But, um, but he made the title sequence eventually and you realize, oh, this guy went off to have a film career. Well, there's two points. When you're watching that show, there are some actors. Uh, Steve Carell is definitely one of them. The guy who uh, Ed Helms, the guy who plays this Andy character. The minute they come on screen, the show cannot contain them. Like many of the minor actors, and I don't mean to sound like a dick, but many of the other people are minor characters. And even though they do their thing well, they fit into the show, you know. And you feel like oh, they're doing a great job at this, but this is kind of their lane. Then there are people like Steve Carell this Ed Helms, the minute they pop on screen, they are larger than life. And you just feel palpably in your gut. Oh, this actor is too big for this show. Meaning they're going to do well in the show, but they will also go on to have a film career or they will go on to be able to do other things. And I don't know what that is. It's a certain charisma or 
I don't, I don't know what it is. The camera loves them in a way that just, I don't know, they pop off the screen in a way that other actors don't. But, you know, it's not surprising to me that some of the actors have gone on to do many, many other things. And some people, you know, this was kind of their opportunity. I mean, I think Adam Carolla used to say, you know, it's kind of embarrassing as someone who's a host of a show, where a lot of times you'll have some actor who was big in the 70s or 80s, you know, maybe a minor actor from Cheers or Full House or one of these sitcoms that endured for many years and became part of the the cultural zeitgeist. But these actors who don't go on to have careers, they really feel... Uh, jilted, right? They feel like they were typecast and they feel like in some ways that show was a success and it was a gift and a blessing, but it typecast them and kept them from working after that. When a lot of times I think it's pretty apparent to the audience is like, hey man, you should thank your lucky stars you got that role in the first place because a lot of people could have done it probably just as well as you. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you got it. I'm glad you had this, you know, you had that, uh, that lucky break, so to speak, but it doesn't necessarily follow that you were entitled to a career after that. Do you know what I mean? And so even though a lot of the minor actors in the office are fine for what they do, they don't jump off the screen in the same way. And in actual fact, when you watch later seasons, I mean, I think as the show gets successful, a couple things happen. One, everybody loses about 10 or 15 pounds between season one and season two. It's like they shot the ep- like they shot the pilot, then the show got picked up, and maybe people get a little, like, you know, you see some fresh haircuts between <laughs> the pilot episode and episode two. Uh, maybe there's been some lighting changes or something like that. But uh, it's like people tried to get camera ready. And then the first season airs and all the actors get a chance to see it. And they go, oh, shit, I'm looking a little uh, I'm looking a little soft around the jowls. Like, I really got to hire the personal trainer and whatever. And I was even thinking, I think the character's name is Angela, but she's the sort of, I don't know, prissy. Is that a word that people still use? Kind of conservative girl who's dating Dwight. In the most recent season, she's kind of dressed kind of, not provocatively, but, you know, sort of a business, smart businessy, kind of sexy, right? Kind of, kind of a boss, you know? And I was thinking when she first started, she looked like a, uh, like a Mormon piano teacher. <laughs> and now she looks like more of a sex symbol. She has like a modern haircut. And you think as the show goes on, as the seasons progress, when it's time to renegotiate contracts... You know, once the show once the show's gone on for a few seasons, I think people start to understand that they're kind of uh, rooted in the show, so to speak. And when it comes time to negotiate, the actors have a little bit more power in later seasons than they did in the beginning. And so, even though their character is supposed to be the Mormon. Uh, the Mormon piano teacher type who wears uh, the collared shirts with the long sleeves buttoned up to the, the middle of their throat and long dresses and doesn't show their ankles. That in later seasons, the actor goes, hey man, uh, this this roller coaster ride's going to come to an end soon and I got to catch some, uh, some agent eyes or something, you know? I can't just be the conservative person. I have to have some sex appeal, you know? I got to try to find my audience or whatever it is. But you can, you begin to sense that there are more cooks in the kitchen than there probably were at the beginning of the show. And it creates some unusual dynamics on screen. And you have a sense, too, that there are some episodes that happen that are completely fucking arbitrary that have nothing to do with the arc of anybody else. But you just sense 
that that actor's agent said, you know, I need an episode for my character. I need one episode this season where my character is the center, is the A storyline, not the B storyline or the C storyline. I need them to be the A storyline for X number of episodes every season. And sometimes those are the weakest episodes. Um, And I think it's because... You know, these are kind of minor character actors, many of them. And some of them are fucking phenomenal, but plenty of them are, you know, in my very personal evaluation, minor character actors who sometimes try to step out of their lane just a little bit too much. Um, um, but yeah, that said, yeah, I think the whole point of this was, yeah, why is BJ Novak prominently featured in every season in the title cards when they show up maybe... L- as little, if not less, than most of the other characters on the show. And my, uh, I got to do more research about this, but my hunch, my hunch is that it has something to do with how the show was originally conceptualized, or, you know, this happens too on, on talk shows, is it could very well be that B.J. Novak and maybe another major actor on that show have the same agent. And so when that person sits down to negotiate, they say, okay, this is what I need from my clients. And because they have the more powerful actor, they're able to negotiate for them. For example, on late night shows, like David Letterman may say, oh, I want, uh, I'm sure Tom Cruise has his own representation, but you'll understand the point, which is, you know, The Tonight Show wants Tom Cruise, but the person who represents Tom Cruise also represents some, uh, some other actors who need a fair shake and have things they want to plug, who, may, who, the, who the show may not be as excited to book. But that agent will say, you book uh, minor actors A, B, and C, for their own stuff, and I'll give you, um, I'll give you Tom Cruise. You know when fucking uh, Mission Impossible, um, Ghost Protocol comes out or whatever it is. But um, yeah, what am I saying? I don't fucking know. Why and why am I speculating on the title sequence of The Office? I don't know. This is the stuff that I think about, frankly. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, I had two thoughts. You know, we were talking a second ago about the whole George Floyd thing, and I had, I had a few thoughts that I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I hope you can dig what I'm saying. But I had this thought when I was walking with my girlfriend. So uh, we live in the Bay Area, and the downtown area of Oakland, California, as I'm sure you can imagine, is a very uh, politically charged place right now. And right after the George Floyd thing, when there were protests every night, I mean. By the way, now especially that it's 4th of July, but ever since the George George Floyd case in the Bay Area, there are fireworks going off incessantly throughout the day. I don't know where this influx of illegal fireworks have come from, but everybody seems to have them. And at all hours of the night throughout the day, people are just setting off fireworks in, in residential areas, which is very strange. All I'm trying to convey is that the climate out here is different and you it, it you can you it's just something you can palpably feel as you go about your day and when you enter you know the uptown or downtown area of Oakland you know uh people were like boarding up windows and stuff for all the protests and there was some looting taking place um but most people were sort of as a preemptive measure were boarding up their windows and in the meantime though during the day you'll have local artists who sort of have ladders and paint buckets and they sort of go down the avenue and set up shop wherever they want and the police don't seem to intervene it's in a way it's kind of a social service but they paint these boarded up windows with uh murals and political messages and so it's actually kind of a nice 
<laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a, a, a sort of a living art installation. You can actually spend the afternoon kind of walking down downtown Oakland and just kind of seeing the, the, the living art, you know, the sort of, you know, it's, it's creative people in the area saying, hey, if we're boarding up these buildings, let's try to use this as our canvas, right? And, um, you know, this is a response to a political situation. Let's also repurpose these boards for our political platform also. And so you get the Black Lives Matter messages, you get the George Floyd portraits, um, and some of the stuff's really beautiful. But anyway, me and my girlfriend were walking around this area, and I was thinking about this. One, I saw a particularly bad portrait of George Floyd, where I pointed it out to my girlfriend and said, look at that portrait. And she was like, ugh. And it looked exactly like, have you seen these bad tattoo things? Like, I bet if you Google image search bad tattoo, you see these portraits. They'll show you the original photo that the person brought in and how the tattoo turned out, and it's fucking atrocious. It's the type of thing that if that was your tattoo, you'd probably want to cut your fucking arm off rather than live with that portrait on your body for the rest of your life. It was that type of a George Floyd thing. But it got me thinking, which is here we are in Oakland, California, you know, and George Floyd, God, I'm so dumb. I'm pretty, pretty sure it happened in Minneapolis, but it's another part of the country for sure. And you just think when George Floyd woke up that day, this is where it gets strange, but you got to hear me out. Okay. When George Floyd woke up that day, he had no idea, one, that he was going to die. But also, until that time, he was a relatively unknown person. He was average. He was pedestrian. He was, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say relatively in, uh, insignificant, the same way I'm insignificant. And frankly, the same way you're probably insignificant. You are just a person bouncing around your life with... You know, you, and you mean a lot to the people who know you. You mean a lot to the people that you come into contact with. But as far as the world is concerned, you're, you're insignificant. And yet, in one moment through his death, he is catapulted to international celebrity. And I don't mean celebrity of the sort like uh, Katy Perry or Lady Gaga or Tom Cruise. Um, but in their death they become a cultural icon. And it was just, seeing that portrait, as bad as it was, still got me thinking, I don't think any of us could comprehend the idea that anything we did in our life would have that kind of cultural impact, that literally, overnight, our name, we are formally anonymous, uh, insignificant, ineffectual people that have no influence over the tide of world history overnight become the face of a social movement. And the part where this gets kind of weird and kind of spiritual, if that makes sense, you know, I'm not a fatalist. I don't believe any of us are here to do anything. Um, and I certainly don't think that George Floyd's death was, um, or really, I'm actually, well, I should say George Floyd's murder. I don't think George Floyd's murder happened for a reason. But if you let your mind kind of, uh, if you let your mind expand to, to sort of absorb, to sort of pick up what I'm putting down here, I mean, there is this sort of Tolstoyan, this, you know, in Tolst Tolstoy and War and Peace talks about this at length in the sort of philosophical patches, passages of War and Peace, but 
There is a cosmic work being carried out. And even the major players in life, the Napoleons of the world, the generals of the world, the presidents of the world, who think that they have the greatest influence on world events, in actual fact, they're merely, you know, totems of an incalculable, is that the word, a sort of um, uh, unquantifiable number of small events that happen all the time. And it's these things that really sort of uh, change things. And that whether it's through war or anything else, that some great greater purpose, some greater work is being carried out uh, through culture, through people, through time, through history, through world events. And I had this idea, I, I had sort of connected two things. There's a scene in Dogma, which is, when you go back, it's actually, it's not a great movie, but there is kind of a poignant moment where I think it's, I think there's an angel character. I think it's supposed to be the archangel uh, Gabriel. But he tells this story about him having to tell Jesus that he is the son of God and that he was going to be killed and crucified. And he has this moment where he says that the, not the baby Jesus, but the child Jesus, the young Jesus, he, he says this to, cries and weeps and sort of begs him not to do it. But this is what he's fated for. This is his, you know, he's the son of man. This is why he's put on the planet. And again, I'm not a fatalist. I don't think that this was George Floyd's purpose in life, but I'm just saying hypothetically, if you could have tapped the eight-year-old George Floyd on the shoulder while he was in his world history or U.S. history class in third or fourth grade, first learning about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, or when he was sitting around with his family, you know, many adults in it were probably part of the civil rights movement. Um, if you could have tapped him on the shoulder, uh, when the Rodney King situation happened, which he lived through, if you could have tapped him on the, on the shoulder and said, through your death, you know, or you will die, you will be killed by a police officer. And, but, but through that, you will become the face of the, of a, of a new wave of the civil rights movement. And you will forever be placed in the constellation of those people a victim absolutely but your death will be a vehicle for so will be a vehicle for social change and meanwhile there are so and and george floyd didn't have to do anything for that to happen i think this is the point i'm really getting at this was not something george floyd wanted and i'm sure if you had asked him at any time in those eight minute and 46 seconds when he had the cop's neck or uh, the cop was kneeling on his neck to save him? Of course he would have wanted that. But George Floyd didn't do anything. He didn't aspire to have this kind of influence. You know, he didn't go to school and study social justice or, I'm trying to think, I had a friend who went to Cal who had a major like that. They literally got their undergraduate degree in something like social justice issues or something like that. That's not what he did. He just lived his life, had a job, and was just going about his life. And yet he exerted more influence on the world than most people who spend every waking hour of their life trying to impact the world. And I think that's what I mean by this whole um, Tolstoy, war and peace sort of analogy. You know, many of us go about our lives with ambition, wanting to have influence. And yet sometimes the people who exert the greatest influence on the world don't seek it at all. That police officer even. I mean, if you can really detach yourself and look at this dispassionately and uh, try to step out the realm of who's right and who's wrong, that police officer 
If you had tapped him on the shoulder when he was 10 years old, playing on a playground, and say, you will kill a man. You will kill a black man. I mean, imagine tapping that police officer on the shoulder as he's seeing... Um, um, oh, why can't I think of the name? I literally just said it. Who was the black man who was beaten by police officers? I keep wanting to say, <laughs> I keep wanting to say Rodney King. Is that it? Wait, dude, why am I... Dude, I need to get my fucking head checked for a brain tumor. But the point is, if you could show him earlier footage of police brutality, you know, what would his visceral reaction as a young white person be watching that footage and tap him on the shoulder and say, you will become that. You will become the white police officer who kills a black man. And in that moment, through that decision, you will change the course of human history. Insane. I mean, most of us can't even begin to comprehend that type of influence. You know, there's no telling what sequence of events we're setting in motion by just being who we are. You know, that whole butterfly effect, right? You know, changing the smallest thing could ex- on, a, on a long enough timeline can, ins- can exert a phenomenally huge influence. Anyway, does that make sense? Is it weird to be thinking about that stuff? I don't know. That's where my uh, that's where my mind goes. I literally saw that portrait and just began thinking. I don't. I, I expressed it to my girlfriend. I don't know if she fully dug it, but yeah, it was just this idea that an average person through their death changes the course of human history. You know, and I, I'm not pretending that it solves anything, but I, I think uh, there's uh, if something so small can have such a profound effect. Uh, I mean, the the effect that it is having, there's no doubt that it is changing the course of human history. Yeah. Well, powerful stuff. I will say that, I don't know if you'll believe me, I mean, uh, literally I was a, a couple, I think it was probably like a week after the whole George Floyd murder, when Dave Chappelle first released that, uh, um, this, the, the, the 30 minute standup special that he did 846. Um, I was working, um, I think it was like on June, it was like in the beginning of June, I think that it was released maybe even the first, uh, the first of June, but I was working, uh, until midnight when, and it was, I think it was literally released at midnight because right after I got off work, checked out, whatever I logged onto YouTube and it was a suggested video for me and I clicked on it and I shit you not, you know, not that this is like the first uh, hundred or so, but when I saw that video, it had 5,000 views. I was like 5,246 or something like that. I mean, this thing had just dropped and I remember watching that. And I don't know if I should be embarrassed to say that, but that was the first video I saw. I mean, his emotional response to the George Floyd murder, that was the first thing I saw. That was the first reaction I saw that viscerally hit me. You know, it was almost like I absorbed what had happened for the first time. You know, I don't know if I was formerly experiencing this whole thing like school shootings, right? Like they happen so ubiquitously now, it's like you can't even keep track of them. And frankly, we're sort of desensitized to them. They don't really affect you. Intellectually, you understand that it's sad. And, uh, you know, it impacts you in that way. But you don't feel it. But seeing Dave Chappelle's 
emotional reaction on 846 was the first thing that really hit me. And uh, I think it's gone on to have probably tens of millions of views right now. I, I'm not going to look it up, but I, I think last time I checked, it had something like 25 million views, I think. But the idea that I was one of the first people to see it was pretty impressive. And I, I don't know if you'll believe that. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it, sound, it can be a bit like the whole Woodstock thing. Like uh, if everybody who was actually at Woodstock or everyone who said they were at Woodstock was actually there, <clears throat> it would have been 10 times as large. But um, yeah, sometimes the planets align and uh, I don't know. I feel lucky for having been one of the first to see it. I don't know why that feels, <laughs> I don't know why that feels cool, but it does. Although I did, I did see Dave Chappelle one time. Hold on, I gotta drink some water. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking is when you watch that special, there's who knows how many people in the actual audience and they obviously have them sat at a distance from each other. <clears throat> And this was almost certainly done in the way that Dave Chappelle does a lot of his sort of pop-up shows, which it's literally announced the day of, and there's like a lottery for tickets, and you're just lucky enough to get tickets or you're not, and you're one of, you know, a hundred people, a couple hundred people, who knows how many, of how many thousands of people apply for tickets, right? Well, he comes to the Bay Area frequently, and uh, he'll perform at a place, I think he did a show at, was it the Uptown? in Oakland. I can't remember. He's got a couple places around here that he pops up. Uh, he pops up at, I think he did a couple shows at a place called the chapel in San Francisco too. But, um, he, uh, he announced a couple shows. I think this was back in like 2015. He announced a couple shows at the punchline comedy club in San Francisco. And he was doing, I think it was four shows over two nights. There was a, I think there's a nine o'clock show and an 11 o'clock show. And I was lucky enough to get two tickets on the first night for like the 11 o'clock show or something like that. And I, I remember I was single at the time and I had these tickets and it's like, I knew I was fucking sitting on a golden ticket, right? I was like, anybody I ask to go to this thing will go. And so I remember literally thinking like, who, who would I not? feel confident asking that this is my, this is my ticket to take them on a date. And I remember I thought of, I was trying to think, all right, who's one person I'd really like to go out with? And I thought of one girl who I had met only a few times. We had like connected over social media or whatever, but you know, so I was sort of familiar with them at a distance in that sort of weird social media way that we, you know, are connected with people we don't really know. But I was always, I mean, I always thought she was stunningly beautiful. And so I just remember saying, I'm going to ask that person out on a date to go see Dave Chappelle. And, um, (laughs) we went, she was very explicit that, you know, she wasn't in a relationship per se, but that this would sort of be a qualified date, right? She was sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, didn't want me to have any, uh, expectations about the quote date, so to speak, which was fine. Um, but we did, we went and we saw Dave Chappelle and I remember he probably hit the stage at like 1130 and I don't want to exaggerate, but I think at like two o'clock, I think we both looked at each other and we're like, um, I'm kind of good. Are you good? And she was like, yeah, I got to work tomorrow. I was like, all right, let's get out of here. And, um, but yeah, that was a gift too. You know, it's something that when you think back on it, you don't really... I mean, I kind of remember him hitting the stage and just kind of thinking, holy shit, that's Dave Chappelle. I could walk up and, 
slap him in the face if I really wanted to. But it's just so weird to be standing that close to somebody that influential and that impactful. Do you know what I mean? And here they are now coming out with this 846 and you think, and that, well, all right, I think this is what I'm saying. I felt lucky that I was one of the first few thousand people to watch the video. Can you imagine what the people who were actually sitting there feel like? You know, what was that show actually like for them? Because it's very clear that it was edited together in many ways, right? Like they edited down this sort of freeform conversational performance that who lasted, who it lasted, who knows how long. And they edited it down into this, you know, I think it was like a 25 minute, um, you know, sort of mini special or whatever. But imagine how those people felt going, holy shit, man, I was there. Yeah, that came up for me in another way, too. What was that? Oh, I saw this uh, on another episode. We were talking about my interest in interrogations and depositions. And I remember just today I saw this video. They were, the video described it as the, quote, Perry Mason moment of the Jody, uh, the Jody Arias trial. It had something to do with, like, gas cans or some bullshit. But I remember watching that. And even in this moment, you or in this, you know, they call it the Perry Mason moment because it's like, you know, the uh, on on cross-examination where they really sort of... Um, pull out the, yeah, I don't know, the golden ticket evidence or whatever it is that sort of changes the direction of the case. Um, like you would see with Perry Mason or some other televised um, dramatization of what court is like. Um, but with the way it's shot, you can see the audience members, the people who are just sort of sitting in the audience, for lack of a better word, uh, lack of a better word, they're sitting in the courthouse just sort of watching the the... Um, the trial transpire. And when that fucking thing happened, it was all over the news. I mean, imagine being the people who were inside the room as the court case was transpiring. Imagine being on that jury. Imagine being a jury member for not even, not just the Jody Arias case, but what about like the OJ Simpson trial or the Michael Jackson trial? Being that close to history. Imagine being one of the people standing around George Floyd getting murdered. Imagine being the person who shot the video that everyone's seen. Imagine standing that close to history. I mean, how many of us get to say that? How many of us, you know, actively participate in world-changing events? Is it a gift? I don't know. I think there's something to that though. I think that I think we do place a cultural value on that. I mean for good and bad. Do you remember there was a documentary called, I think it was called The Woman Who Wasn't There. And it's about a woman who uh, was an active participant in 9-11 survivor groups. And she was a facilitator, would help people connect online and yada, yada, yada. I don't remember all the details. But it eventually came out that her 9-11 story, which I think was supposed to be her fiance or her husband or somebody like that who was allegedly inside the World Trade Center. Or actually, they, I think it was they were inside the World Trade Center when the plane hit. Um, was all a fictionalized story.
Now, that person has a legitimate personality problem, right? Like, uh, I don't know if it's Munchausen by proxy. I don't know if that's what you call it necessarily. But it's something like that, right? Like, my self-worth and my, um, you know, my need to be coddled and, and cared for, is it, it's a personality disorder. So I'm not trying to diminish that. But there is a type of cultural currency that comes with being next to important events, right? Like, I literally was just boasting about the fact that I was one of the first 5,000 people to watch the Dave Chappelle video. Really, who gives a shit? But what does that say that I do attach some value to that? I mean, is it something like when people are like, oh, oh, do you like Blink-182? Oh, yeah, I like their early shit before they were famous. <clears throat> you know, we like being close to the inception. You know, we want to be at ground zero of these things, not you know, in the wake of their cultural influence, right? Is there something, there is some kind of cultural value with being a person standing even even next to something like George Floyd's murder, right? I know we don't want to talk about it that way, but... Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Something about being an agent of social change without really even wanting to. I mean, there's a part of me that wants to say, prepare to be disappointed. But for many of us who kind of go about our lives and think that our lives don't matter and... Nothing we do will ever amount to anything. I mean, who knows what the cosmos has planned for you? I mean, one of my favorite quotes is Tupac. Um, I think it was in a music video of his. They sort of quote it. But one of my favorite quotes that I heard of him was, he said something like, I may not change the world, but I definitely will spark the mind that will change the world. That's always stuck with me. I mean, I think there's something to that. For some reason, my mind just jumped to David Foster Wallace. And I don't pretend to really know anything about the guy other than being an avid fan of his and reading much of his stuff and seeing who knows how many hours of interview footage with him. But there's something about the film that was made of him, uh, the end of the tour with Jesse Eisenberg and I can never remember the actor's name, but from How I Met Your Mother and... um, forgetting Sarah Marshall and all that. But there's something about that movie, and it may be a kind of romanticization, but this idea that, you know, there's two authors. One of them is just sort of a journalist, and David Foster Wallace is this celebrated literary figure. And if the journalist could have his druthers, that's who he wants to be, right? He wants to be this sort of celebrated literary hero. But when he gets close to David Foster Wallace, I think what's frustrating for David Foster Wallace is his... On the one hand, he completely understands this uh, celebrity status that he has, and it's probably something that he wanted for himself for a very long time. But once he actually gets it, I think he feels isolated because he can't really communicate to other people how um, disappointing it is and how unfulfilling it is. You know, he has everything he ever wanted, and yet he's not happy. And why am I talking about that? Uh, wanting to be an agent of social change. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of lost the thread there for a second. Hmm. 
I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about the Sword of Damocles. I think I mentioned the Sword of Damocles, and I, I think that stuck with me because I wasn't sure if that's a reference that most people are aware of. I think they are, but I don't know that they are. You guys know that I, I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna fucking bastardize the story, I guess. But it's basically there's a story of there was like a king and somebody at his court and. Um, the, the person at the court was saying something like, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice to be king or something like that? So the king sort of dresses him in his own robes and puts him on his throne. And I think this is actually at a party or something like that. And so the guy's sitting there and he's sort of enjoying his life. And at the end of the, at the end of the party, the king or somebody basically points to the guy and has him look up and realize that there had been a sword hanging over his head by a single hair the entire time. <clears throat> And of course, the, the you know the idea is that now this person realizes that they were living under impending doom the entire time and wasn't aware of it. Dude, what and what the fuck am I talking about? What does that have to do with anything? I don't know. I think I was trying to say that I think that's a fucking ass backwards way of saying be careful what you wish for. Maybe that's all I mean. Hoy. Yeah, man. Who knows. I started this new thing at work, um, and I, you know, and I always feel weird talking about work because I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be talking about or, or what I want to be talking about and might regret talking about. But um, this is this is sort of a non-issue. But I did start facilitating this thing at work where I sort of uh, meet with volunteers once a week, and we just sort of process difficult calls that they've had, or maybe they have, you know, issues with work. And I'm I'm basically just a, you know, I'm just there to support them. But this is a brand new thing that we started. We had the first one last week, and I remember about five minutes before it started, we're all meeting remotely now. Nobody has showed up. And I was like, motherfuck. It felt exactly like I felt as a musician. And I was thinking, holy shit, here I am. I've transitioned out of a creative career. Here I am launching this new thing at work. And nobody's fucking showing up. And, and you know, you don't, I mean, you kind of promote it like a show, right? Like you put out a couple email blasts. You know, you have it spread by word of mouth throughout the agency. You ask trainers to tell their trainees, like, hey, here's this new thing that's going on. You make some graphics and, like, a poster for it that gets put up around the office and gets emailed out to people. It is like a show. And here I was five minutes before it started, and nobody showed up. And I was thinking, Jesus Christ, it's my creative life all over again. And thankfully, people did show up. I think it was about six of us, but... um, you know, it's probably just as well. I was going to say it's not not the turnout that I wanted necessarily, but if you're really trying to facilitate a conversation, how many people do you really want showing up, right? <clears throat> yeah. People are sitting with a lot. I mean, we're talking about George Floyd and stuff here, but even... Uh, I hope this is okay to say, but even checking in with my coworker who I was meeting with remotely, she informed me that her father had cancer, which I wasn't aware of. And it just, that, that, I don't know, that feels so common to me right now. And I don't know if it's because I'm dialed into it, but there are so many people in my life whose parents and relatives are dying. And the fact that it's happening now during COVID is, makes things especially difficult. I mean, the reason I saw Matt was uh, he and his partner were coming back from Texas. Um, she had lost her father recently, and they were going back to Oregon where they live. My neighbor... Uh, young couple married. Um, her father died recently. My girlfriend's had two deaths in her family. You know, and this coworker of mine, I, I hope their father um, 
lives for a long, a long while yet, but it did remind me that, you know, I think one thing I've been frustrated, frustrated about is I, I definitely have felt oversaturated and I feel like my, I, I, I mean, I feel like my hands are full and I know that there's always people who have it worse than us. Right. Uh, I mean, if you lose your arm, you can go to the amputee ward and find someone who lost, who has lost both of theirs. Right. And if you've lost both of theirs, you can find someone who lost a leg too. And then that person can find someone who lost all their appendages, right? So we can always find someone who has it worse. It doesn't necessarily make, it doesn't necessarily mean that our own pain isn't valid and shouldn't be acknowledged and um, whatever, whatever. But, you know, I, I have felt oversaturated and overwhelmed by all the things that I'm doing in my life, which, you know, may sound like a party to other people, but, um, you know, I'm working full time, I'm going to school full time. You know, I'm trying to support my girlfriend with this thing that she's going through, um, which is actually, uh, she's doing well, by the way. She's actually moving this weekend. So, you know, I'm not pretending that we're out of the woods, but um, things are moving forward with that. Um, but yeah, with the current events and all that stuff, I just, I feel overwhelmed and I feel oversaturated and um, it's been challenging. You know, the last few weeks especially have just been, they've been difficult for me. I was actually... Um, maybe I was driving at another point. I don't know. But I remember saying to, you know, as my girlfriend has been here, there's confidentiality things. So when I'm on the phone on the crisis lines, I have to use AirPods, right? So she can't hear the conversations that I'm having. <clears throat> but what I will do frequently after calls is if I'm feeling stressed out or something, I will check in with her and I'll say, is it normal to be this frustrated all the time? And I was trying to come up with a word for it. Like, why am, why am I so upset all the time? And then something came up in my uh, communications class about um, emotional management. And on the one hand, when you take a communications class, there's a lot of very obvious stuff. Like it defines emotions and feelings. And, uh, um, you know, just basic shit where... On the one hand, it sounds silly to go over, but in a way, it's actually kind of illuminating to have concrete definitions applied to things that you think and say and feel and engage with all the time that you think you understand. But if someone put a, a gun to your head and said, define emotion or define feeling, you know, a lot of us, or mood, I think a lot of us would be hard-pressed to, you know, um, delineate between a lot of those things. Do you know what I mean? And so kind of having that, I don't know, that architecture or connecting those dots in a, in a sort of a, a meaningful structure is, is kind of interesting. But what the fuck am I talking about? Oh, yes. We were talking about feelings and we were talking about suppression and how people deal with their emotions, how people manage their emotions. And on the one, on the one hand, they're talking about it in terms of how people are socialized along gender lines, right? So, um, you know, you may... Um, uh, object to this, but at least the, what the textbook says is that when they study this, that women typically demonstrate or more readily demonstrate emotions like fear and shame and guilt. And because those are internalized emotions, whereas men sort of externalize and more readily display anger and frustration, you know, those are outward facing emotions that um, have a lot to do with competition and goal-oriented feelings. Like we're angry when our goals are, we're obstructed from our goals by an external source, either something or someone, right? So we get angry. And there was this phrase, chronic hostility, that came up. And I said, that's it. That's what I feel. In the last few weeks, I've just had this 
enduring sense of chronic hostility that comes up over and over and over again. And what they equate it to is the suppression of anger. You know, there's just these little things that come up all the time through me for me throughout the day that anger me. And I don't have a meaningful way to process it. <clears throat> there's actually a couple of things. There is this idea, I'm not entirely convinced of it. On, on the one hand, I talk about it a lot of times as if I do agree with that. I don't know that it is, but there's this idea that feelings are things that um, are almost like food. They have to be digested and then excreted, right? And you can't really rush the process. It just, it takes as long as it takes, right? You eat something, it comes out when it comes out. <laughs> feelings are the same way. They sort of, they bubble up in you and they sort of uh, bounce around you like a pinball machine and come out whenever they're ready to, right? And you know, you can do things to try to help manage your emotions, like go for a run. Uh, some of us turn to drugs, alcohol, and sex, and food, and those types of things. But, you know, that, that uh, I guess this was kind of the basis of primal scream therapy. Have you heard of this? You know, the idea that you can just sort of get in a padded room and yell and scream, and that's how you sort of exercise these emotions. I don't know if it's my experience on the crisis line or what, but I'm not entirely convinced that that is the case, that just dealing with emotions or, or allowing yourself to experience emotions necessarily exercises you of them. Um, I mean, in a way, I think sometimes focusing on emotional states or even trying to conjure emotional states can actually exacerbate the situation. Um, I think there's a better word for it than I'm than I'm able to think of right now, but somehow fix, fixating on acute emotions, I think we engage in the, engage with them in a way sometimes like, oh, I just have to get this off my chest. Oh, I just have to vent. Um, I just have to talk about this so that it doesn't bother me anymore. I'm not entirely convinced that that's how it works. I mean, I think sometimes talking about things can actually stoke that feeling anew and can actually perpetuate um, the feeling for longer than it would have otherwise. And I'm not advocating the opposite, which is suppression, which I think is what I'm really driving at here. Chronic, this idea of chronic hostility as a symptom of suppressed anger. You know, a lot of us try to deal with our feelings in what we think are productive ways, emotionally appropriate, or maybe I should say socially appropriate, socially appropriate ways, Right. We try to be reasonable. We try to sort of contextualize our feelings or like, or at least I think I do. I try to project some kind of, I don't know, larger perspective on my feelings, which oftentimes means that I minimize them, right? Like I, I'm a pretty critical thinker. A lot of times I can sort of try to, or I can try to force my feelings into some kind of context where I try to see them in a more reasonable way. Like, yeah, sure, that's upsetting me, but there's also X, Y, and Z going on. Um, I need to experience myself um, in relationship to those things. And, there, and, and, and I guess by proxy, my feelings aren't that important. Um, yeah, where am I going now? I don't know. I think I'm just trying to say that, yeah, I recognize this sort of enduring chronic hostility. And so far, the only reason for it that I can come up with is I'm obviously suppressing a fair amount of anger. And I guess I, f I guess I feel it all the time. I mean, I woke up this morning, especially feeling angry like that. My first primary emotion when I woke up was anger. You know, there's been times in my life where I've been depressed 
and maybe you've been in the same place. It's something I've reflected to people that I speak with on the phone sometimes, and they go, that's it. So I know other people experience it, but you know, there's been times in my life where I was so consistently depressed. I, you know, for me, it was always this sort of wet blanket type feeling. It wasn't just sad. It was a, it was a, I mean, until I experience wisps, wisps of it again that are more transitory now that I'm older, I think, holy shit, I felt this way for months at a time at certain points in my life, which is insane to me. It, it would almost be like if I woke up hungover, I bet if I got drunk and woke up hungover, I'd think, oh my God, I woke up this way every day for years of my life. I would be incredulous. Um, or if I smoked a cigarette right now, I'd be like, holy shit, I smoked 20 of these a day. Oh my God. It's amazing what we acclimate to, especially with our emotional states too. But there were times when I was, when I would be depressed that I would wake up. I mean, my brain would turn on, my eyes would still be closed, but my brain would turn on, right? And you are officially out of sleep. You're conscious, you're back to the waking world and your eyes aren't even open yet. And I remember the first thing I would think is, damn, God damn it. Not another one of these, you know, like I go, oh God, not another day like this. And I would literally feel, the first thing I would feel is this burden of just getting through the day, like thinking, holy shit, my eyes aren't even open and I already have no idea how I'm going to get from this moment to the end of the day. You know, I'm just going to hold my breath like every other day and just fucking like through sheer grit, I'm going to get through it until I can fucking come back here to the safety of my home and fucking collapse. Do you know what I mean? Now, what I felt this morning was not that, but it was something like that. And then the minute my brain came on, I felt, God damn it. I realized I already had a lot of homework to do. I wasn't able to finish what I was supposed to do yesterday, given, you know, my work commitments. And the first thing I did was I woke up to some, you know, constructive, but ultimately feedback or criticism from my teacher around a rough draft I had sent them. So not only did I have the work I already had to do, but now I had to incorporate these changes. And I just thought, God damn it. And I drove my girlfriend home. Um, she has more packing and stuff to do. And I'm, I'm sort of over here doing homework, which I finished and now taking a break to do the podcast before I work tonight and do more homework at the same time. But I was in a fucking bad mood, you know, and I don't think I said two words to her the entire car ride home because I was just fucking Mr. Grumpy Poopy Pants. And I actually, I was talking about this in therapy, but, you know, maybe it's obvious to you, but it wasn't obvious to me until I said it, which is, I think I need some time off, <laughs> you know, like I'm not the type of person who like looks for a vacation or really thinks about vacation. I'm just kind of doing what I'm doing. And if it sucks, it sucks. That's just the way the world is. Right. And, uh, I just sort of endure, but I did email work and say, you know, how much paid time off have I accrued or what kind of vacation time am I, am I looking at? Cause I've never really thought about it before, but there is a part of me that is beginning to think, damn, I got to take some time off. And I, once my girlfriend hears that, she's like, oh, we got to go on a trip. But you know, I got to pump the brakes and think if I take some time off, I got to do something that's going to be truly rejuvenating for me. You know, not what does a vacation look like to other people, but if I really wanted to take some paid time off work, how could I use that time? How would I, me very personally, how would I spend that time to really rejuvenate myself, 
What would I do? I've never really thought about that. You know, some people really know themselves. You know, they know what rejuvenates them. You know, for some people, it's, they really feel like my, my girlfriend is this way. She genuinely gets rejuvenated by seeing her family. And when she doesn't see her family, she misses them. There is a reservoir of some emotional content that gets depleted when she doesn't see them. And when she is around them, I see it getting filled up. You know, and when we travel and go on vacation, she lights up in a way that, you know, carries over when she returns to her life. You know, it, it sort of spills over and it kind of, it just puts some wind in her, wind in her sails. You know what I mean? I don't, I've never experienced myself that way. And I think it has something to do with, you know, I'm the type of person who I very selectively hear feedback and um, I mean, I'm sure we've talked about this in other ways, in other areas of my life, but just briefly, you know, I do not absorb positive feedback very well. And even though, um, I mean, in a way this kind of come up for a writing assignment I had recently, but it's, n- it's not untrue. It just, or I should say, it just happens to be the case that I've been a well-liked person my entire life. Um, especially looking back on my life, I can see that I was not only well-liked by most people, I would say I was even popular, you know? I would say that I was a cool guy that people liked, that people thought was interesting. And yet, as I lived my life, I felt like I had no friends. I didn't, I was incredibly insecure. And even though I think some of that is true for most people, especially in our teens, right? Like your your teenage years are just hard and everybody feels ugly and insecure and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, throughout my life, I mean, I was, it's just, I've never been the type of person to let good feelings in. I always explain them away, push them off. Um, and it's been a, it's, you know, it's been, it's been a problem, right? And it's, it's, it's actually deeply affected my life. And it's actually kept me from um, excelling in areas that I should have, because if I had been nicer to myself, if I had been encouraging to myself, um, I, I wouldn't have been so bogged down by everything, you know, it wouldn't have felt so hard. And I, I would have, you know, if you're able to let positive feedback in, it can actually propel you forward. Like, Hey, this feels good. How about more of the same? You know, I, I don't hold on to those things, you know? So even when I've enjoyed myself, when I travel with my girlfriend, when I come back to my life, I'm just back. And it's almost like that trip never happened in the same way with music, I would have great things happen to me. Things that if you had tapped me on the shoulder years ago and said, hey, you're going to be opening up for this artist at that local venue. I would have been like, holy shit. And then I do it. And it's cool for like five minutes. And then I just explain it away. And especially after it's happened, sometimes even in the living experience of it, but especially five minutes after it ends, it's like it never happened. And I think, I guess I'm concerned that something like that is going to happen if I take time off, you know, and I don't want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy necessarily, but I guess I'm saying I have no thoughts about what would be rejuvenating for me because I don't think I've ever really let myself think about it. You know, I don't really, you know, it's not something I do consciously, obviously, but I don't give myself permission to think about what I enjoy and what makes me happy. 
and to give serious thought to, huh, how can I spend my time in such a way so that I actually get the things done that I need to, which I always do anyway, but how can I structure my life in a way that I'm, I'm sort of making a point to give myself time to do the things that I enjoy? Because even things I do that I enjoy, I always experience them with a kind of, there's a guilt alongside it too, right? That there's this, you know, not that I'm Catholic, but there's something like this perpetual Catholic guilt, right? This sort of um, uh, original sin, you know, like there's just something fundamentally wrong with me that endures through every action and thing that I do, you know? And so whether it's like, uh, like taking a break from homework to do the podcast right now, I feel guilty about that, right? I feel guilty that I'm not just chugging away blindly at my homework, right? Um, Even mucking around with synthesizers. I mean, a lot of this year, creatively, has been an exercise in just giving myself permission to do what I want, right? I haven't sung and played guitar at all in the last seven months. I've spent my time playing jazz drums and learning synthesis, and which has nothing to do with the anything I've done creatively up until this point in my life. Excuse me. But it's what I feel called to do. It's what I feel inspired to do, and I enjoy it. So I'm trying to give myself permission to do that. I mean, I think we were talking about this in terms of my brother on the last podcast. He and I were talking about books. You know, and I've always said that, you know, when it comes to reading, I've always drawn on the Western canon. I mean, I sort of look at reading like Netflix. There are so many options out there. I don't want to weigh them. I want to be told what to read. And so the way I discriminate from all the choices, I just decide, oh, I'm going to read the classics, right? So when, it, so when I finish Dubliners, it's like I, I approach things like a curriculum. You know, what is the, what is the Western canon? Tell me I, I should be reading, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, how does, that, how does that relate to stuff? Oh, I don't give myself permission to just... Like, if I'm reading a book, I have to finish it, because I think there's going to be a fucking test on it at some point, right? Like, if this comes up in conversation, I don't want to be the guy to say, oh, I started that but didn't finish it. I want to be the guy who, who finished it, you know? Like, if I have something critical to say about Gravity's Rainbow, I want to be the guy who, who read it. I don't want to be the guy who's like, well, I read the first 20 pages, I couldn't get into it. It's like, no, I read it, I hated it, I hated every minute of it, but I finished it, as if that's some kind of fucking accomplishment. You know, my brother has evolved past that where, you know, he has a library card now. So instead of buying books, he just takes them from the library. And if he starts something and doesn't like it, he says he has no qualms about not finishing it. And he can really read whatever he wants. (sighs) I know it sounds minor. I don't know why that sounds so big to me, but I'm just, I'm not there. And I think I was just trying to equate that to my... Yeah, here I am feeling burnout. I'm feeling chronically hostile. I know I need a break, and yet I have no idea what a vacation to me looks like. It's not traveling, I'll tell you that right now. But it's not just staying home and eating pizza and watching Netflix either, you know? And I I don't know... Yeah, I don't know. I gotta give more thought to that. What does a vacation look like to yours truly? Anyway... Uh, yeah, speaking of vacations, many of you are probably not working uh, today as I record this. Today is July 3rd, tomorrow is the 4th, but it happens to be a Friday, and I know many people are off work today, observing the holiday, and holy shit, my music's playing. Talk about perfect timing. Um, 
yes, many of you are probably, uh, I don't know, soaking up the sun, eating barbecue, and hopefully staying indoors. Um, you know, I don't want to be one of these people who just sort of yells and screams at people for not wearing masks and going into public, but Jesus fucking Christ, people, what's going on? It's like you're trying to kill people off. Anyway, uh, I hope you're staying safe. I hope you enjoy the holiday, but I hope you do so from the safety of your own home. I hope you don't go to the beach, um, like most people. Um, yes, well, let's just call it there, folks, shall we? Um, we will pick up on this in the next episode. Until then, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, take a moment, rate and review the show, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the show, and if you can think of someone in your life who you think would like it, who would genuinely possibly be a fan of this podcast, share your favorite episode with them, and let's see if we can't grow this thing. Otherwise, thank you for listening, thank you for your time, and ciao for now. <laughs>